and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is powered by Stick and Ball TV, the baseball and softball streaming platform. If you're a coach with a growth mindset, then Stick and Ball is a no-brainer. With the weekly updated videos from some of the best baseball and softball coaches in the country, there is no excuse not to get better. Check it out at stickandball.tv or on the Stick and Ball TV mobile app. This episode is sponsored by What About Baseball? It's no secret that we live in a world with constant electronic distractions. Families are spending less time together and kids often can't look up from their devices. But the What About Baseball brand is here to help. What About Baseball is a family-owned, baseball-centric business whose focus is on providing the best baseball toys, games, and accessories to bring friends and family back together to bond over the great sport of baseball. Starting with their best-selling classic edition board game, What About Baseball offers fun and exciting gameplay for fans at all levels from beginning to expert. Whether you want to teach someone the basics of counting balls and strikes, or whether you are deciding if you should suicide squeeze, the What About Baseball Classic Edition board game is a proven winner and has the reviews to prove it. Even better, it's made right here in the USA. What About Baseball would like to reward Ahead of the Curve listeners 20% off their best-selling board game and free shipping. Go to whataboutbaseball.com backslash curve to get your special offer. Once again, that's whataboutbaseball.com backslash curve. On today's show, we have on Derek Sullivan head baseball coach at Sac City Community College. Derek begins his eighth season as the head coach of the Panthers and his 16th as a member of the coaching staff, including his 19th involved in the City College program. In addition to his coaching duties, he also teaches full-time in the kinesiology, health, and athletics division. In his seven years as the head coach, Coach Sullivan has had 90 players transfer to four-year universities. Having a commitment to prepare for the next level, both on and off the field, is a huge part of becoming a Sac City guy. While at City, Sully has amassed an overall record of 191 and 108, and the Panthers have qualified for the postseason in six of his seven years, won three Super Regionals, two sectionals, and finished third in California in 2019 and the state runner-up in 2018. Sully returned to coach for the Panthers in 2005 after playing for ABCA Hall of Fame coach Ed Blankmeyer at St. John's University in 2003 and 2004. And so on the show, Derek fills us in on what a Sac City guy is. And we spend the bulk of our conversation going through an entire year of individual player development within the team setting. This episode is so good with Derek Sullivan. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, John. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, excited to be on, you know, uh, uh, a real deal podcast and, uh, listened before and, um, you know, again, got some really, uh, really good guys and I've learned a lot. So nice to be, be the guy. Hopefully somebody learned something from. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm really excited to get to learn from you today and, and for our listeners. And this is, this is kind of cool because I think, I don't know if if you're like the third Sac City guy that I know, or I know three Sac City guys, but all of these guys, it just seems like the history of Sac City is something that is just, it's so great. And I feel like for me being, you know, Midwest or the South, whichever you want to put Oklahoma in, uh, California kind of has its own thing with the Juco stuff. So I think the the history of that is a little, or his history of Sac City is a little under, under undervalued. I don't want to say undervalued, but under known throughout our country. So 
I would love to hear uh, you talk a little bit about just the history that you guys have, the coaches that have been there, the players, and just let's intro the show with that. All right. Well, again, I, I hope it doesn't come off as any sort of arrogance, but you know, that's a, that's a big, that's a big chore right there. And obviously I'm biased. You know, I think that we have a heck of a program and that, that, uh, you know, we've had a lot of success throughout the years, but I guess starting with it is, you know, the California community college system, we, we are on our own, you know, we don't, um, partner with the NJCAA or the NWAC. Um, and I don't, it's not, you know, one of those, uh, rivalry things. It's simply the way things are built. Uh, California community colleges are completely, almost completely, uh, state funded. So, uh, it's gone through ebb and flow of how much it costs, but basically one of the largest, you know, um, uh, was it not post-secondary, but higher education systems um, in the country and the world um, with number of students and just the absolute rock bottom price. Um, currently, the first two years, if you graduated from a California high school, the first two years are free uh, for residents at community colleges. So like, it, and it started out that way, um, which is separate from your standard junior college just across the rest of the country where there is tuition. Not that it's overly expensive, but um, we don't have athletic scholarships, never have. And I would, you know, far be it for me to say it, but it, it'll never happen. It's just such a, a different thing. So uh, what's developed is California is completely separate. We're off. We, we are over here on the left coast and, um, you know, we're fortunate. Baseball is one of the, uh, you know, the, the best sports that we offer. Um, I think there are 88 baseball playing schools in, in a normal year, whereas, you know, that's, that's not quite the concentration in, in the rest of the country other than, you know, Texas and Florida. I know I have quite a few Arizona's, um, you know, well off as far as number of programs, but, uh, and we've done pretty well. Um, you know, I think five state championships, I believe we've been in the state championship game. Oh, 18 times, which means we've lost 12 or 13 on the last day. Um, but going back to, you know, I think it's 1951, um, you know, we've had illustrious players and coaches, um, you know, Jerry Weinstein's probably the biggest name and, you know, that we can, we can lay claim to. And he didn't start the program, but, uh, he inherited something that was already really good and, and made it a whole heck of a lot better. He's, you know, has, he's a, one of the better living baseball men, um, on the planet right now. And the, the amount of things that he's done and how most of it or much of it began at Sac City. And, and we've been really uh, fortunate to be, I feel like, at the epicenter of, of a guy like that. You know, your Andy McKay's, Paul Carmazzi's, the Skahe Bomberry, um, you know, Rob Cooper, current head coach at Penn State. Freddie Corral has been a pitching coach in the SEC for many a year. Um, you know, we, we're fortunate. You know, we've had 43 major league players with Nick Mears being our most recent last year in uh, 20 with the Pirates. Um, we've had hundreds of Division one guys at our place, hundreds and hundreds, um, you know, professional players going back again to the forties and fifties. Um, there's just so many things that, that have been done by Sac City guys um, after playing in our, you know, humble, small junior college program. Um, you know, we've been fortunate to, to learn a whole heck of a lot along the way from those guys. A lot of those guys come back. You know, I still have an attachment to Jerry Weinstein, even though I never played for him. Um, I was the first group of, of Andy McKay disciples, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's it's a long history and it has 
you know, more to do than just the last 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, we're getting close to, a close to a hundred years of playing baseball at Sac city. And, uh, you know, it's been pretty good for most of it. No doubt. And, and I love hearing that. And I love just, uh, again, a lot of the names that you just mentioned are really at the forefront of pushing college baseball forward and now professional in the last, I don't know, I don't, when Jerry and Andy got into it five or eight years ago or, or something like that, mm-hmm. it just, it's pushed the game forward. And that's, that's an awesome thing to be able to, to a history to be able to have. But I did want to talk about whenever you got the job. So you come into it and you're a Sac City guy, which it says in your bio, which I love that. And so you come into it and you know the history, which I'm sure is is a huge selling point to it and and for you to be able to to sell the tradition of it and being a part of it. But tell us a little bit about your vision of what you wanted to do, what you wanted to accomplish and kind of, you know, we talk about the president's first 100 days. Really, what did your first you know 100 days on the job look like? Uh, you know, what I'd say is that um, when I uh, got the job initially, um, so I was appointed the head coach, uh, it was a shock to all of us, um, the whole coaching staff. Um, many guys have been there longer than me. Um, and so it started with the end of, I guess, at the end of the 2012 season, Andy McKay brought us up after we got eliminated from the playoffs. And he was just like, hey, guys, um, you know, real emotional. You know, it wasn't a great year. But um hey, I I think I'm done being the head coach at Zach City. I'm going to go into professional baseball and see what it's all about. And, you know, kind of like a bomb that dropped on us. And, you know, over the course of the summer, it wasn't obvious. Like, okay, you know, Sully, you're the guy. Um, There were a lot of moving parts, you know, uh, to to leave a full-time faculty position um, is, is risky at best. And so I know Andy, you know, he took the leave of absence just to make sure things were right. You know, the pro ball was good, but, you know, we were not in a great spot. Um, all the things that I just spoke of about the history of Sac City, we were kind of in a lull. A lot of the local programs around here had really invested in their programs, gotten real deal head coaches, and it was much more competitive than it, it had ever been. And, you know, we were not the best program at the time. You know, we had, for a variety of reasons, you know, maybe recruited the wrong guys. We, we really weren't doing it the right way and um, not, 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 not the right way. Uh, I, I don't want to be overly harsh, but there were better ways and we were stuck in our old ways. And as much as those things have been successful, you know, when you get, you get attached to things that have worked, but have you know ultimately been passed by, whether that's techniques and coaching and, you know, how you value player relationships or, you know, how you treat your players, or what have you, we weren't in a great spot and we were kind of, you know, hanging on and grasping at, you know, what we had been as opposed to, you know, being, transformative and trying to to turn into uh, the type of program that we had always been, you know, for decades, which was progressive, which was, you know, what's the next thing? What are players, you know, not so much into like, we're just going to do the next hot thing, but what, what is professional baseball? What is division one baseball? What are they finding? What are these techniques? What are these ideas um, that they're incorporating that, are making them, you know, continually successful or what are the new, you know, the, the up and comers doing? Um, so, and I don't ever want to say I did anything because, you know, each, each job is unique, but, you know, I inherited, you know, a program that's supposed to win state championships or compete for them every single year. And we weren't anywhere close. And, you know, so we, as a, as a group of coaches, you know, we're kind of on our heels. 
Um, again, it was a great opportunity individually. I think, you know, I look back on it. I was, I feel like I was the right guy to, to do what needed to be done. But um, the first couple of years, I'll be honest, they, they weren't the, the most fun I've ever had because it was hard and it's, uh, you know, learning what, what you're doing wrong and then coming face to face with, Hey, if we keep doing this, this is, this ain't going to work. And, um, you know, so my vision was, this is Sac City. We've always talked about, you know, we're, we're a process oriented program. Um, players are first, you know, we wanted to be an environment where major league players could begin their journey. And, you know, we wanted to be able to step into every spring with the idea that we can actually talk about competing for a state championship. And so the two, the two goals aren't always, um, I mean, it's hard to really mesh those because if you're talking about creating a space to make big leaguers or help develop them, of which we had done a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on individual development and regardless of what the team does, you know, sometimes players need what they need, but also weaving that competitive excellence piece in, um, you know, we have a real alumni base that, you know, whether they're, you know, they're not so much vocal across the country, but, you know, we have a tight knit group that's, we have a lot of old guys that really still care about Sac City and to hear from them at the golf tournaments, uh, when they drop by the games and, um, you know, their, their opinions of our best speed work and if it's good or bad, um, you know, those two things, those are my vision. We need to compete for state championships and we need to be a place that um, professional players can become big leaders, you know, and that's, so uh, if we're talking about the big grand vision of what it was all about, even when I took over and didn't know what I was doing, um, that was it. And I'll be honest, it's still it, you know, we're trying to compete for state championships and we are trying to, give players the tools they need to get to the big leagues, that they will use those skills when they are there. No, that's wonderful. And I, I again, I love hearing that. And I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. And I, I think the first one I want to know, so you've got a player's first mentality, but you also have standards that you want them to live up to. And I think that, you know, I, I'm, I may be biased in this opinion, but I feel like, uh, almost in in every generation in every history, we do something and then we overcorrect and then we go back and it's almost like a revolution. So then, so I've always tried to stay in the middle of everything and just try and take the best of things as I go, like stay very neutral in thinking and not want to one way or another. But I think there's a lot of people who hear, hey, players first, and then it's just like the Wild West where there's no rules, you know, where we're like, <laughs> oh, let's just ha go have fun. Let's roll a ball out. And I know you're not like that, but I do want to hear so what's the fine line with that? Because I, I know that, that you have very high standards just based on everyone that I've spoken to about you and, and Sac City. Uh, and by the way, I, I did want to comment on, forgot to comment on this too. I think I've heard the term Sac City guy more times than any single person. <laughs> Everybody I talk to, they always mention, you know, and, and so in being, you know, playing at a Juco, it's like, it's not a badge of honor, but being a Sac City guy, I feel like is. Uh, but anyway, so reverting back to the very first question, what's the fine line and where did you kind of draw the line in the sand of, hey, guys, we're, we're going to let you be who you are, but this is what a Sac City guy looks like? Well, you know, we came, we went through a time of coaching where, you know, we were very well, hands on, I, we're still hands on, but we kind of had a mold of 
and I'll use like the hitters because um, that was where we were the most restrictive of, you know, you're going to do this. You're going to do these drills. Um, when we're struggling as a team, we, you know, we would make our lineup do the same thing, you know, like an early down stride in game just to show, okay, show us that you're bought into what we're doing. And we were very, very rigid. And a lot of times it worked, but what you're talking about with any across team, across the hitters, across the pitchers of one philosophy, as many guys as it's helped, there's going to be at least equal that amount that it's going to hurt and make worse. And then there's going to be a margin of it's unchanged. And so like being so rigid can't be a player's first mentality. You can't, it can't just be about what I want or what my coaches want. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the roll the balls out mentality. It takes a long time to get to the point where you can just roll them out. Usually that's professional baseball or the big leagues where they've done so much for so long and they've earned trust, you name it. So we don't do that either. Um, but somewhere in there is, you, you know, this is a hard game. And when you start to understand, you know, whether it's motor development or how bodies move and what, what restrictions, you know, and certain athletes or non-athletes have, you have to allow for individual freedoms. So we go back to, you know, what does players first mean? It's you're going to allow these guys to be who they are. And we have some basic tenets that I'm going to require them of them because that's what Sac City is about. Um, you know, a lot of them are interpretive, you, you know, where only they know what, what reasons they're doing certain things for. You know, whether it's running hard, only the kid's going to know if he really is giving his best speed, his 100%, his best effort. Um, only the player really knows deep down if, you know, they are totally committed to the pitch that they just said yes to on the mound. But they, only the player knows how often they are actually in the moment, being in the present, and if they're actively trying to play those pitches. So we're promoting certain ideas, but, you know, we're trying to, to really work hard with our guys to develop a trust in, in telling them the truth so that we can get to the point where we just let them play. You know, we just let them play. We've learned their strengths and weaknesses. We've, we've made them aware of what they are. And so they're not shocked when a sign is called or not called. Um, and really, um, I think, uh, you know, this guy, hey, Bomberry, my pitching coach, you know, it's, he's a, he didn't play at Sac City, but if he's a Panthers Panther. He's a Sac City guy through and through, even though he never played. Um, you know, one of the, the most powerful things that he brought back to us and really it was a learning experience of his individually, but noticed of our program right around 13, 14, 15 is you know, our players need to like us, not be our best friends. We don't need to do that. But if they don't enjoy their experience, again, going back to players first, if they're not having fun, even in the toil and, you know, the Navy SEAL term, embrace the suck, if they're not embracing the suck and, and enjoying the hell out of it, we're doing something wrong because it's way too difficult of a game to make it hard and unenjoyable. It's going to be hard. It's going to beat you up. But if you don't like who you're quote unquote going to war with, right. Going to battle competing with them and from top to bottom, the head coach to the last player on the team to our, you know, our equipment guys and, and our training staff, et cetera, we need to make it a good environment, a good experience where they enjoy it. And, and I know I'm probably, I feel like I'm all over the board, but accountability is a big word that gets thrown around and it's critical. 
but you know, it's self-accountability. We, we are constantly trying to find ways to, you know, have their peers hold each other accountable and really just understanding that the, the idea of self-accountability, that's what's going to get you your scholarship. That's what's going to get you to, you know, that really good next program and have you able to survive and thrive because, you know, junior college guys, as they go to the four-year level or, or anybody, if they get into professional baseball, it's pretty cut and dry. If you don't bring it with you, you're probably not going to get it there, whatever that is. Um, you know, when you're 21 years old, moving forward, you're not being recruited or signed to have your hand held. You know, you need to know how to do it. And so honesty, brutal sometimes, um, you know, holding guys accountable for the, the, the main parts of our program, best speed, being in the moment, you know, playing pitch by pitch, competing with whatever you have. You're, I have all kinds of mantras, but, you know, give 100% of your 80% on a given day. Um, and really loving that process, creating an environment where guys love how hard it is. Not because I'm a jerk or our coaches are so rigid. It's we're all on the same page. Like, hey, I want what you want. I want to know what you want. You know, what is your mission? What are your goals? Do you want to go to college? Do you want to be a pro? Do you want to start at this position? Whatever it may be. You want to be the best player you can be. Once I know that, I can now get on their side. I can help them with their mission and their dream. And so it's not easy. Uh, I probably just made it way too lengthy, which means I need to continue to get better at defining it. But, you know, getting to know your players, really getting them to understand whatever program it is that you're running or trying to implement, and then get on their side. Be on their side and then require them to be on your side. And it, and it kind of plays in hand in hand, right? The more, I, I guess the, the simple way to say that, would, um, Jerry Weinstein, the, the first person I heard say it, not that he didn't steal it from someone else who was equally as good, but how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's the, the jumping off point. So players first is, you know, you got to care about them. You got to care about the things that they want. And then how do you weave what we're trying to accomplish, what my job at Sac City and, the, and, the, and Sacramento City College and what our campus values and weave those things into, you know, what your players want to do as well. No, I really like that a lot. And, and I, again, thank you. Uh, for going so in depth with it, you didn't, you didn't go too long, I promise. But, you know, one of the things that, that I did mention earlier is, you know, with different waves of things. And I think when some people hear that too, they think, well, then I just need to love my players. And I, I was reading Doug Lamov's book, the uh, coaches got to, or Te coaches got to teaching, I think is what it's called. And okay. he mentioned there was a quote in it that said, players do care how much, you care, but they also want you to help them get better. And so I really like that too, because I think that that distinction needs to be made. So thank you for talking about how to help them accomplish their goals. You want them to like you, but you also, you really want to push them to get better. And, and both of those play off of each other. But I also heard you mention earlier that you want to prepare them for the next level or, and, and you want professionals to come back and you want them to be pros. What are some practical things that you guys teach? Uh, and and I, I and if, if you don't mind, I'd like to hit on this one too because I think that this is true. You guys allow a ton of, of responsibility and freedom to own their career, which I think is exactly what a professional does. So I'm going to steal that one from you, but I'd love to hear some other examples of what you guys do to 
to make sure that they know, hey, this is what a pro does? Well, I would say right now, uh, so Bomber, right? He, he's he's our best coach. Let's put it that way. He's way better than me, and and he's very well researched and spoken. And he's a great coach. The example that I'm going to give is that you know our pitchers. He's been able to. He's our recruiting coordinator, and you know we do a great job of, of spreading out the recruiting. But he's the point man, and he's been able to attract, and we've been able to attract tons of you know toolsy pitchers and how well when we sit down and recruit them and just like when we sit down and we coach them he takes them through here is what and especially now that we have a bunch of rapsodo data you know I, I wish we had track man hopefully somebody listen to this wants to sponsor us and give us the 25 or 30 grand we can get it done but uh, maybe a hawkeye sponsorship will take it but with what we have we know the data and he knows the data specifically the combination of spin rates and efficiencies and what what shaping of pitches looks like and how to make it better or really just how to put them together um like we can tell our guys what it looks like in the big leagues you know if you're if you can rip off a breaking ball with you know what is it 70 80 percent efficiency and then it's spinning at 2700 you have a big league quality breaking ball doesn't mean you know you're just going to the big leagues but to be able to identify hard data, you know, this is what a professional looks like and give that information to our players. You know, our, our guys, when they leave, you know, we're just, we're scratching the surface. We haven't been able to capture as much or, or do it as well with on the hitting side yet um, with our blast sensors and, and different, you know, Rapsodo and messing around with K-Vest and lots of technologies. This is not the only thing that we do. Really, we haven't had it for very long and, and we've been successful without it, but we're constantly trying to provide proof of, hey, showing improvement, you know, um, we have our guys come back and, you know, that's probably one of the most powerful things is when, you get professional players, whether it's a Greg Vaughn or a Fernando Vina or an FP Santangelo or, or our recent guys at Pro Bowl or guys at, uh, you know, four-year schools that come back and kind of, you know, they vouch for it. These guys are right. You know, we do on the hitting side, we do a ton of stuff that's hard to evaluate. You know, we talk about approaches and what are your strengths and weaknesses and what's, you know, what zones should you attack as a different hitter with different swings. And, and it's being able to, prove to them and show them and get them to trust that what you're doing matters at the next level. And, you know, that's where an inordinate amount of our time is spent. You know, I, I think most coaches can get pretty good at efficiency and practice and rotations and times and, and great drills because they're great drills are out there, but it's about you know, getting the most that you can out of it. You know, we have a, I hope this doesn't, isn't going off topic, but we really try to get our guys involved in their own development and understanding that like uh, throwing program, for example, you know, we have a really good throwing program, you know, everybody long tosses and pulls down and, you know, different amounts, but we treat all our guys as if they're pitchers. We try to, but everybody in the country plays catch every single day that they show up to the ballpark. But what are we going to get out of our throwing program that's going to separate us from every other program in the rest of the country? What are you going to get out of your throwing program today in this 10 to 30 minutes, depending on what, what it is? What are you focused on? Rep after rep. What is, what is your focal point? 
What are you trying? What is your goal for the day? How are you measuring if you're successful? And the idea of, you know, today plus today plus today equals your career and getting them on board with that and teaching them how to measure themselves effectively. And a lot of times it's internal, it's effort, it's focus-based. So again, you can't always write that down. I can't look and check off the box, but if you get guys involved in it and believing in it, um, then, you know, that's how you're really holding them to these high standards that it takes to earn a scholarship to the SEC or the Big 12. You know, and so that they are, in fact, ready when they go to, they know what they have to do and how they have to do it for themselves to continue to get better, not just to be good enough to get a scholarship, not just to be good enough on that one day when that one team loves you and they want to sign you because you look the part and you show them what they needed to see. It's how do you thrive beyond? How do you, how do you teach yourself how to work? And it's hard and it takes a long time. Um, you know, again, hopefully I didn't, uh, I didn't evolve too much there. It's, you know, how do we, how do we expose them to stuff at the highest level? It's we just have incredibly high standards and, and we keep pushing them. When a guy shows that he can live up to them, all right, let's go a little better. You know, let's, let's do a little more. It's not, not more as far as, you know, just work hard, work hard. That's true, but it's not about working hard only. That's like a, if you, if you can't work hard, really hard, then you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. It's, it's working smart. And so we're trying, we, once we get them, once we they get an understanding and a trust of that, we're trying to expose them to what, what it is to work smart, not just hard because hard, hard work. I don't know. It's a, it's an assumption. It's a given for, for anybody that's going to be good or great, but what's going to really separate you and be elite and, and do those stupid, crazy things that you want to do. Everybody hopefully wants to do you got to do the right things, man. You can't just keep bumping your head up against the wall, you know, really hard. and think that's going to work. It's effort. It's overrated. You got to do what's right. And that takes thought and good coaching and trust in the process that it will work over time. Um, you know, so yeah, a brutal honesty, right? Great. You work hard. That's not enough. That provides you no guarantee. It's a good thing. And we should all promote that in society, but you got to do what's right and do that well, not just hard, not just try. No doubt. You work hard on the wrong things and you're, you're just wasting a lot of time. You get worse. You'll yeah. actually get worse. Right. Exactly. So you get, you get your new crop of players in August and, uh, you know, like most junior colleges, you have them for a year, you get them acclimated, you have them for one more year, uh, most of the team I'm assuming. And then you send them off and then you get a, you get 50% new guys every single year so it's you have you don't have a ton of time to be able to, to acclimate them to a climate and you know i think teenagers do a pretty good job of of getting to know each other on their own but i'd love to hear some different team building activities that you've liked and just some of your favorites you know um we spend the maximum amount of time together as we possibly can and in a lot of different rotations and pods and, and waves just to be as efficient as effective as we can with different groups of players. But, um, you know, one of the, the best team building activities that we do, and it's, you know, it's going to sound funny and, and it's really basic, but we do a lot of fundraising, you know, and whether that's working college football games or at, like parking and concert parking and uh, concessions at our football games, you know, making nachos and hot dogs, and, you know, big events on our campus that we're fortunate to have for local high schools. Cause we have a, like a really large football stadium, uh, you know, working those events. 
I remember when I was a player at Sac City. That's how I got to know my teammates, that uh, extra bit of of the best. You know, yes, in, in baseball practice and spending so much time with your position group, but like away from the field, but still together for a common purpose, even though, you know, it, that's crappy, right? Making nachos, that's not fun. Spilling them, sweeping them, cleaning it all up. But we do a lot of that kind of stuff because, you know, again, the motive is that if we need to buy a pitching machine, we need to have the money to do that. You know, we lead the state in the amount of baseballs that we buy. And Rawlings is, you know, they love us because we buy at least a hundred dozen baseballs a year. We lose them all because we have this phenomenal on-campus facility, side note. But when it hits a nice old brick building, that ball cuts and you really can't use it. Um, but so it's born out of that, what the program needs, but the more that I require my guys to spend time with each other, doing things for the baseball program, we get pretty close, you know, um, we're fortunate. We have a wide recruiting base. So we'll, we'll traditionally have a number of, of, you know, not team apartments, but apartments where guys, you know, groups of guys live together and that forced interaction at the beginning uh, makes for great relationships around the end, around your team. Um, and so that's a lot of it. Like you talk about the first crop, like sometimes we'll have a fundraiser job before we ever meet in the fall because we have an opportunity to work. And so our guys are already getting to know each other. These dudes from across the country at times or, or different countries. Um, we've had some Japanese players and it's critical that time that they spend it together. Um, the biggest impact uh, in season, uh, let's culture builder, uh, team builder. We, we stole it, uh, Bomber saw it, and we brought it over. The Atlanta Falcons were the ones that we heard did. It's called the Hero Highlight and Hardship, where you know you stand up. I, you know, I usually start it on the head coach. Coaching staff goes through it too. Um, you talk about the hero of your life or one of them, uh, one of your highlights in the game of baseball, and then you talk about you know a hardship in your life. And uh, I've never been, and this was like four years in a row that we'd done it until last year. Um, sometimes you don't get to do it all in one setting, but it's amazing how much closer your team gets when people are, are willing to peel away the layers and just kind of open themselves up. And, um, you know, that's, I recommend that for any team, any college team or above for sure to do. Um, it's incredibly powerful and you get to know the people in your locker room, but you know, when they're willing to share if they're comfortable, but you know, sometimes there, there are some really difficult um, things that are surfaced, but again, team building, uh, culture building those activities, right? The fundraising stuff. And then just the opening up of your, of your team in the locker room and a you know, safe space kind of, you know, with your boys and hopefully people that you trust and respect. Um, those are, those have been awesome in my viewpoints, you know, and there are many ways, right? Not everybody can afford to go to a ropes course. Those are freaking awesome, but you know, it's also not necessarily the most effective. We've gone paintballing before bowling. Those are wonderful. But, um, I think just the more time you can have your guys spend with each other, you know, and, and me as the head coach being there for those times, not just making my assistants do everything and me being gone. Um, it matters. And it's just time, just time. No doubt. I uh, speaking of fundraising, uh, I'm I'm 100% familiar with the JUCO games fundraising. I remember just a, a side note, short story. I remember standing at I, I think it's 
Phoenix Municipal Stadium. It's where wherever the Cardinals play. I remember standing and doing the the waving with the parking lot, standing on a parking lot, and it's I think August, and it's probably 120 degrees, and I'm just wondering oh, yeah. what the heck I got myself into. <laughs> it's the only time in my life I think I've ever had my shoes, the bottom of my shoes, melted. That it was so <laughs> hot, and it was I will never forget that experience. But oh yes, we did, we did get lots of cool gear. And it was worth it in the end, but there's no, <laughs> there's no team building and toughness building activity than standing on a parking lot in, in that. But no, I, I love that. And, uh, you know, just throwing that, throwing that in there. But as far as player development goes, I know it, for me, I know Bomber is, is, he does a fantastic job and, and he puts out a ton of stuff. And, and so do you as well. And so I know that you guys are doing some really cool things for player development and you've already hit on several of them. Uh, but just a, a, as an outline goes, if, if we're wanting to steal some ideas from you, and again, that we're speaking to a lot of coaches who do have an off season and then working their way into the in season, but just what are some different? I, I don't know if you've got uh, if you've got them segmented or periodized period, periodization model, whatever that you want to call it. But uh, if you've got that, then that's that's great. But I would just love to hear just some different highlights, how you use uh, player development, or just some different you know, just different advice that you want to give coaches uh, that are listening. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, again, uh, something that I heard said by Jerry Weinstein that, that really has stuck with me uh, as simple, straightforward is anything that you can do as a coach with your program, with your team, that's uh, promoting uh, the quoting, the quote unquote, building a bigger engine, like in a car, um, that's first and foremost. So like one of the things that I know that we've done over the last 20 or 30 years, it's progressively gotten better is how we lift and how, not, not always how often we lift because we are limited um, with classes. You know, again, the junior college model is that, you know, it's class-based. They, they have to take a lifting class. Um, we're limited in our hours of requiring them what that they can do. But, you know, the, the physical training, you can never – ever almost do too much of it, you know, and you have to kind of alter your practices. Um, as an example, we almost never condition anymore. You know, the standard pulls after a, after a start, which, you know, don't get me started on that. That's, that's, that's eyewash. Um, but we don't run at the end of our practices very often because we lift so hard because, you know, the other thing at the junior college level, you cannot run a successful junior college program in any sport saying that you're trying to prepare your guys for the next level or your gals, right? Again, I'm talking to every sport um, or, you know, sending them off to professional baseball. If they don't walk out of there looking like men, physicality needs to improve. Um, I wanted to start with that, you know? Um, so development, physical development, a bad swing is a whole hell of a lot better when the guys were really strong. Right. Simple, straightforward. Um, but getting past that, right, that's not enough. You can't just have a bunch of strong guys because then it would be easy. Um, we really have a high, a higher level of individualization for our practices than we ever have. It's, it's just continued to um, evolve. You know, if you watch our pitchers practice at, at William Land Park in the fall of a normal year, Bomber's going to be sitting on the park picnic bench as the three fields that we have open up our, our poor man's spring training complex. And you'd walk up to him, you'd sit down next to him, probably have a bag of seeds, bottle of water. 
And you'd look around and you'd go, Bummer, are you coaching anybody? But what's really going on is there are like five different practices, five different buckets of guys, and guys on a, a velocity program, guys on a command program, and every different variation of that. And, you know, and that's in addition to the rest of the team where, well, the outfielders are over on campus because that's their hitting day, you know, on video, and we're going to do analysis, whereas the catchers are involved in bullpens, but they're also half of them are hitting on that, you know, diamond three. Um, it's craziness. You know, and that's why I also lead the state of California and coaches year in and year out, because to do it the way we do it, you can't, you can't get away with three or four coaches. You have to have all kinds of guys that are on the same page, but really good at what they do. Coaching catchers, coaching hitters, coaching outfielders, two infield coaches, two to three um, pitching coaches, you know, and the individualization is, is something that we've really, really tried to do as well as we can. So, you know, again, and we're fortunate, we have the space and, and the location of, of our city park next to our campus and, and how we can spread out um, our flexibilities is pretty incredible. Um, it's not the same at most places. It just can't be done, not because we're better than anybody, but we are, we're fortunate in taking advantage of our resources and, and where we are. Um, as much as we can, we try to measure and test and assess and evaluate. Um, and some years we've been able to do that more successfully with time and weather, but, you know, and that comes down to, you know, recording workouts, um, you know, measurement of weighted ball toss throws, you know, using the radar gun as often as we can simply the stopwatch and how fast we're doing things and, and movement, you know, turning to double play. There's a standard there and it's not good enough if it's four, four, it's gotta be four, two, because then everybody's out, um, again, specific example. And then, I think one of the, and I mentioned it earlier, the the best things that we do, uh, or at least the most worthwhile endeavor, is getting our players, each of them, you know, individualizing is great, but that doesn't mean that they're not just doing what you tell them to do in that bucket on that day on that workout. Um, measuring, great, so they know how to read the radar gun. That's super. It's getting them involved in their decisions for their career. They understand why they're measure, measuring. They understand why for these next six weeks, they're going to be in this bucket of players, why they're in that cage with those hitters for their stroke development with our head coach, because they're all working on something similar for them for a period of time. And we have to track improvement and show development so that we can move on to the next stage of that development. Um, so individualization, measurement, and at the end of the day, the, while we're doing all that, we need to teach them what decisions that they need to make for themselves. You know, if we were to, by the time we get to November, December, certainly in the spring, we've done this the last number of years. Sometimes on Fridays, it might just be because we have to go out and recruit um, or there's something else going on, right? You name it. We'll go individual development day, or IDP, we call it the individual development plan, because we've gotten our guys pushed along the path far enough that we have a level of trust that they literally know what they need to go do at practice that day. And, I, and I'm not saying that we do that every Friday. It's not, it's not quite that simple. But, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I have confidence in, in speaking how I do about how it works, because I've seen it work. We've had some teams where there are a lot of guys that we don't need to coach by the end 
they literally know, at least for that period of time, because of what we've gone through and what opportunities are out there and our level of the game, they know how to prepare themselves. You know, they know how to continue to earn that scholarship that they've already accepted. And they know what they need to do for that next level. And they know how they need to prepare for tomorrow's game and their role in it and, and where they are at in the season. So um, something we're very proud of. You know, that word development means a lot to us at Sac City. And, and we go to great lengths to try to be really good at it and, and get better at it. I love hearing that. And uh, again, with you hear that term a lot, but you don't get to hear the in-depth practical practicality that, that you just mentioned, which I think is really good. And so uh, go through the fall and we're getting into preseason. And now I, I don't know if that switches for you, uh, but you're trying to get the entire team ready to play uh, a season. And so walk us through just some different things that you do or critical things that you do for the preseason. So where you feel like you're in a good place before game one. So, yeah, just to back up and kind of not recap the fall, but sure. we are almost, and there's a phased approach. It goes, it gets less and less, or a little bit less, never goes away. Our fall is as almost as 100% as we can make it about individual player development. Individual, what it means to make that player and that player and that player better. Now, again, over the top, it's not like we don't teach them how to hold runners at second. It's not like we don't have a basic first and third defense, but we have not done a first and third offense by that point right, until we get to January. And, you know, and let's not act like we're just introducing it every year from scratch with returning players. There's always going to be a level of aptitude that we currently have that we don't need to practice it in October, but, you know, we'll run our pregame infield and outfield because that's a, you know, really it's good for development of cutoff and relays, but the team stuff is absolutely secondary the only reason that we teach and instruct much of our team defense in the in the fall is so that when we play our outside teams and our non-traditional scrimmages that we you know we can actually piece together a baseball team um you know but we've you know cats probably out of the bag we haven't taught our guys how to sacrifice bunt the last two full years not like ever but not until january because it's not important for their development not individually. Is it going to help our team at some point when we can move runners? Yes. But we try like crazy and have executed it pretty well. And it's, trust me, it was uncomfortable to think about and, and possibly do, but we've done it. You know, that stuff, when you're talking about dealing with players' careers, and we talked earlier about player first and, and getting them to buy into what you're doing and, and your plan for them, you know, when we follow through on – Hey man, we're not going to bunt, even though I might need to bunt you when it's important, but we're not going to do that in September. We're not going to waste. I want you to be able to hit. I need you to be able to hit line drives harder and further. We need to increase your rotational, or excuse me, your rotational acceleration and, and get your, you know, your attack angle of your swing into a better window before I need to decide that you're going to sacrifice your at bat to give us an out to move a runner. Um, so again, kind of wrapping up the fall, when we come back in January, the one thing that we're always deathly afraid of is a bunch of rain because we're in Northern California and that we won't be able to play live scrimmages, live inter-squads three days a week because that's what we feel like we need the most is live games. They need to see me giving signals so that they know like to actually look at me again because in the fall, 
I almost never give signals. We don't even have base coaches in the fall because we want to improve our base runners ability to, to make their own decisions, you know, on advancing bases or not. Um, so what do we do in the spring? It's, it's kind of a cluster of, man, I hope the rain subsides and we can play because that's what, that's what we feel like we need. Um, and the formula, if you want to oversimplify it, is we think that we have some really good players and we work our butts off to get the best players recruited possible. And if we can make those, you know, good players or elite, you know, or hopefully elite, but the best players that we can find, if we can help them become better throughout a fall, all the things that, you know, I guess traditional baseball, your small ball stuff that, you know, your, your execution, that those things, your pick plays, you know, your, your shenanigans offensively, if you can squeeze out a run in a crazy moment, that'll all take care of itself. If you have good players that get better, that you're able to help, you know, hopefully we have to, or we don't have to bunt very often during the season. So if we don't have to bunt very often, we probably shouldn't work on it so often that it takes away from our other things. If that makes any sense to you. No, I'm right there with you. And again, practicing what happens most in a game and, you know, it, Obviously, if you need to get a bunt down, you better be able to get it down. But at the same time, if if you do that, you know, and you know your team better than anyone else, if you only do that a couple times a year, then definitely, definitely right there with you. Yeah. And, so, and we bunt. And I, what I would say is that I've become, as a game manager, not just the head coach of the program, but like sure. the manager of the game and I run the offense, I'm not going to bunt with a guy that can't bunt. And I don't, and, and, yeah. and I think I'm a really good bunting coach. I could bunt, I could base it bunt, I could sack bunt, I needed to. But I didn't go to a Division One school because I could really bunt. I learned how to hit and I could play defense and do those things. And again, your personnel will dictate what you need to do. You'll know which guys have back control. Right? You know. And then you call a couple bunts and, oh, that guy really already knows how to do it. Cool. We can bunt with him versus another guy that, well, if I don't think he can bunt and it's a bad matchup, well, I need to pinch hit. I better have another player ready. Um, and so my game management has become, it's just that. I, I, it's less about what we should do. It's more, well, who is this player? Can he do that? And if he can't do one of the things that will make our team successful, then I need to make a move. But I'm not going to force a guy to bunt just because we're supposed to bunt. I've seen that blow up on my face far more often than just letting the game play out. And, you know, that's that's my learning curve that I think I believe in. doesn't mean I'm right. But, you know, uh, that's that's what our spring looks like. It's kind of a cluster of let's play live, let's figure out our team, this and that and the other, and let's get them acclimated and, you know, then let's go get them and let's play every pitch. I love it. So what, if anything, switches whenever you get to end season? Well, I will say that um, the switch becomes we do now care about team. There are things that, you know, we're clean shaven. We wear high socks. We have, you know, the high pants. And those, you can play baseball without, you know, you can have a big rough beard and be, you know, a, a Hall of Famer and high socks doesn't matter, but it does to our program. And so the, those two things are kind of obvious visual sh um, signs of, hey, this group of guys is on the same page, or at least, you know, and you can fake it but we really start talking about team and what it takes to win. Um, in the fall, everybody has a lot of opportunity, you know, and, and I share playing if we play a double header, there's usually two, two waves of, of people that play, you know, the A and the B, if you will, 
when we get to the spring and it's well communicated, it is now about us. And we have plenty of time that we allocate for early work or post work and, and within practices that guys are still working on their thing. Development never stops. So if we if we go all individual in the fall and then stop and just do team stuff and get really good at our bunties, then I don't think we're honoring what we are promised to our players of to help them continue to get better. Um, they're just becoming, they're only doing what Sac City needs them to do. And I think, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, it's the, you have to weave in, you, you have to get your players on board and gain their trust, earn it, right? Not just, not just get it. You, you have to earn that. And by doing that, or in doing that, you have to give them a lot. You have to give them your time. You have to understand them and get to know them so that as you get towards the spring and you're going to ask them to help you win, not me, but the program and your, their teammates, that's, that's, we all try to get on the same page there. You know, we're, we're going to do less individual development. We will spend time on a third bunt defense. If we decide that we need to, we are going to make sure that they understand, um, you know, the five different first and third plays that we have that we've used, you know, two of them routinely and the other three once in the each of the last five years or something. But it's that trade-off where, hey, we have a lot of guys in the program. We always have about 40 guys on our roster for, for a year. There's 10 guys in the lineup, man, when the game starts. And there's a whole hell of a lot of guys on the bench. And you know, it's that it's, it's prepping them for that. But I think that's also how we keep our long or lengthy bench in games, not so much in games, but in the program. And over time is, you know, we still try to make them better. We're not just worried about wins and losses. I don't just get ticked off if we lose and carry it through a weekend. I'm constantly thinking about the red shirts that we're carrying and are they taking full advantage of their time while they're not playing? You know, the guy that hasn't played for a couple of weeks, you know, is he getting better at batting practice or is he pouting and doing the same thing? Um, well, we just prepare them for how harsh it, it becomes, right? Of if you're not the player, if you're not a player that gives us a chance to win, you'll never play. And if you decide at the beginning of the year that you're not in the starting lineup and you chalk it up, then you're not a Sac City guy. That is absolutely not the case. So, you know, we're, we're all about winning when it gets to the spring, but we absolutely, I don't want to say sprinkle it in. There's a piece of every day that will allow our guys to keep getting better. And, and if you're not there at the beginning, you can be there at the end. Um, but we keep going, Hey, if we're winning with nine guys in the lineup, then those guys, will, you know, they'll keep playing. So there's no guarantees, but we definitely want to make sure that those guys are ready that are backing them up. No doubt. And so uh, you get through the regular season and we're in the, the postseason chase right now at the time of this recording. And there's a lot of guys that are listening who are either in it or preparing their teams for a postseason run. And so what, is there any advice that you would have in regards to, okay, we've worked all of our year up to this point. Now what do we, you hear a lot of coaches say, Hey, we want to cut back on some things, be lighter on their legs. We want to really push this or that, but I, I would really like to hear your advice on that. So yeah. And the short answer is both those things you just said is we're going to, we're going to back it off 
physically, you know, we'll, we'll lift a day less a week type of things. Um, at this point, that, that would be the other thing that we've changed is that we used to lift at 6 a.m. for the entire year, you know, and the more we've learned about like sleep studies and rest and recovery, that's, it's good to, I don't want to say weed them out in the fall, but it, it's a little harder. You see who's committed, but you know, now we're lifted at noon in the spring so that our guys actually get an extra hour or so of sleep in the morning. Um, but, uh, and the reasoning behind why I, I've become way more comfortable, like, Hey, we'll just take a day off, you know, or we'll just, we'll take a pregame batting practice on a Friday in the last two or three weeks of the season, just to, so we're not, we're, we're not going to pull any hamstrings, right? If a guy just needs to stretch out or whatever, the reasoning behind it is that if you haven't already done it, you're not going to do it then, right? It's, it's very straightforward. At the end of every year, any failures that we've had, you know, we sit and identify as a coaching staff and we look at our team and sometimes it's personnel and sometimes, you know, we didn't have a particular skill or a group of guys that they couldn't, uh, if we faced a pitcher that was, you know, soft and away, you know, and this is a very standard and we, we just couldn't beat him. Well, maybe we weren't good enough on our middle op approach. You know, maybe we didn't have a group of hitters that, that understood how important it was or, or middle in or, or you name it. We're going to weave that into like the first two months of our fall program to make sure that we have that important, I guess, team-wide skill or understanding of its importance. If we struck out too much in a given year, which happens sometimes significantly, I think the first thing that you talk about when you introduce stuff to your hitters in August, September is that having a two-strike approach really or didn't, it really killed us last year. We would have been better. So going back to your question, it's the postseason. What do you start doing? You back off. I think because the stress is going to come with the games, right? The buildup and you try to keep your guys calm, focused on the pitch, not the postseason. you know, no one pitch is more important than another. I believe that, but you have to follow through with your actions, you know, and you have to, you want to have your guys physically and mentally as fresh as they can be. And if you're trying to input stuff at the end of the year, you know, when it's all the marbles are on the line, uh, it's my belief that you haven't done your job or, you need to do a better job next year because you're not, you, you can't just do things on the fly. It's so rare to be able to be successful doing that. Um, so yeah, postseason, you, you know, you've already got, you've already established your routines by that time you've established your core of players that have gotten, you know, the most of the reps and, you know, it's going to be hard to put a brand new guy in at that point if they haven't, you know, they haven't taken advantage of the majority of the year to, to get in the mix. So, you know, you back off, you're not as hard on them. And, and this is where we talk about as a coaching staff, it's usually the last week or two of the season and definitely the postseason. There is, there might not be a negative word ever that comes out of my mind from that point on out of my mouth. Excuse me. If a guy strikes out looking, what is it going to, he knows at that point that that's bad. What is me acknowledging any sort of negative emotion and attaching it? If I, if I got him in the lineup, I trust him and there's a reason for it. And it might just be because he screwed up or it was a bad matchup. Once again, that's my fault. I let him hit. And so we talked about again, what's players first. I'm just their teammate at that point. I'm making the decisions. My coach, it's the same thing. There's no negative. There's no yelling. And we have been, so much better 
since I and my coaching staff have truly adopted that because there's so many reasons for us to get mad. And so, you know, again, I, I'm probably going a little too far, but what changes is that I'm just their teammate and Hey man, go get him. It's, it, it's literally, it's a butt slapping. Hey, you know, if it's a catcher, go catch your ass off, man. Pardon my French. You know, if it's a shortstop and you kick three balls, it's my fault for putting him in the lineup. It's not him. He's given his all. And if I don't feel that way, then we did, then I did something wrong. And, and I'm not just trying to accept all responsibility, but that's my job as the coach. And if we get to the end of the year and I see some deficiencies in how we coach them, once again, is that their fault? No, nope, they're just out there giving their best trying to win. So the, the tone changes. It becomes relaxed, fun. You know, we, we have a game we play we call white balls where I pull out all kinds of pearls and, you know, you get a point for hitting the ball on the screws and two points for hitting the ball on the screws the other way. That's batting practice on Friday, my man. White balls and that's it. If you win, you sit on the ground while the sprinklers go. If you lose, you're doing the field. That's practice. See ya. We don't need any more ground balls. We'll take those tomorrow in pregame. You know, I, I guess that's a that's been our tone, our postseason tone for sure. There's an inner squad on Monday for the guys to throw over the weekend, and then don't get hurt. <laughs> Be ready on Friday. I really like that, and again, it's you hear that all the time, but it's really hard to do that. And you you even mentioned that it's if, if you're not willing to scale it back earlier in the season, that you know it's 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 hard to then and. So the next segment, I guess you could say, I, I know that, that you're very self-reflective just based on the answers that you've been giving, you know, and, and so I'd love to hear you get through the season and hopefully you guys, you know, win everything that, that you possibly can, but you get to a point to where, okay, the season's over and it's time to turn the page. And so I would love to hear as a head coach, what are you self-reflecting on and then just I would love to hear just your process of what you do to finally turn the page uh, to the next season and the things that you want to implement before the next class gets there. And, and that may be an, an episode in itself, but I'd love to hear some different thoughts from you. You know, I, you're right. It could be an episode in and of itself, but I think it's something that we have a constant dialogue about, you know, because all of our coaches are or almost all of them are involved in recruiting. So we're constantly identifying the needs and, you know, which class do we need this and who's going to do what, what are the plans? Well, who can do this? Um, you know, Hey, we're losing our three, four hitters and they each hit 10 home runs. You know, you don't just replace that usually. Um, so it's kind of, what is our team possibly going to look like? Um, you know, when you lose a, a shortstop that goes to the pac 12, okay, we're probably going to have an issue there next year. Not that it's going to be bad, but, it's not going to be the same. And to say that I, there's not one moment in time ever, you know, and sometimes when it rains, it pours, right? All of a sudden you get three shortstops that are, one's a kickback. One's a guy that didn't get drafted as high as he wanted to, and you're going to get him. And the other guy's the best high school kid in the area. And all of a sudden you got, you know, great problem to have. And, and everywhere in between, sometimes you got to convert a guy to catcher because the other guys that you're bringing in just aren't going to get it done. But Turning the page, um, it, it's the, I, I guess for me, like I said, it's a constant um, evolving thing that, that I don't know that there's ever one point in time. It's just, you know, if you've done your work, the, the idea of you've stacked your hay in the barn. So when the storm comes, you're not worried about that. You sleep easy. You know, 
we 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 don't start recruiting at any one point. We constantly do. Um, you know, when we've identified, man, this year we just have we don't we have guys that can run, but they can't steal. Well, we need to do a better job of teaching them how to take bases when we have the skill set. We need to set aside, you know, development time for those guys. And, you know, it's, I guess when the season's over, there's, even when you win or get close to winning it, there's that quote unquote hangover time where you just, you don't have practice anymore. You don't have the build up to the weekend of the games and, you know, you need some time away. Um, I guess maybe I just don't know how to answer the question in that, it's you know, usually out, it, when the season's over, I've already thought about what we need to do at least a month ago. I, we, I think we're, we're getting pretty good with our current coaching staff that's been together. At, you know, we already know. I think most good coaching staffs do. You know, in the middle of the spring or the middle of the season, for the most part, where you're going to be deficient. And hopefully you're already making those adjustments so that you can compete better this year. And you're recruiting uh, in such a way that you're going to identify those needs so that they're not the same the following year. Um, hopefully no, that yeah. kind of answers the question. I mean, it's, uh, there's not a point in time. If I think if you're doing it right, you're not willing, you know, you don't push that, that conversation off to the end of the year. If you can't throw strikes, the guys that are all coming back and you don't, your strike percentage is in the fifties. <laughs> we need to do some different stuff. And, and you should be starting it, not not so much you're trying to patch the leaky ship, but, you know, you identify it. And, and that's something that's talked about in, you know, May, not July. Okay, guys, remember last year how we couldn't throw strikes? Uh, yeah, we did. We, we remember. You know, you just, it's it's constant for, for us, I think. No, that's a great answer. And it's probably the best answer you could give because one, it's honest. And two, it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not a, okay, we just, we did with what we had with what we thought we stuck to our guns and then we never did adjust, which, you know, it, it, it's a game of adjustments, yeah. but you know, that that's basically a, a, an entire year. So <laughs> coach, I, I appreciate you, you taking us through uh, a year of being a Sac city guy, but I, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So I've got some quick hitters before you go, okay. but I, I know you're a learner. And so I'd love to hear what's something that, that you've learned lately that, that has gotten you excited. Oh, I think lately learning more about the different sleep studies that are occurring or have occurred already in, in professional sports. I know the NBA is kind of at the forefront of, you know, how impactful getting good sleep is and rest and recovery as it relates to injury and, and you know, high, high performance. Um, and really trying to figure out how we can use that information at our level and, and college in general, because college athletes uh, can be difficult because I mean, the vast majority of us when we're in college, that's, you know, it is a, one of the, you know, the funnest times of our lives. You know, lots of people are very social athletes included. And, you know, you think you're invincible. A lot of, a lot of the, uh, a lot of those things. And, how can we get the message across to our guys without being so negative? And how can we get them on board with understanding that if you sleep a lot, you won't get hurt, you know, not that you won't, but it's amazing how the body will recover, you know, when you get the right kind of sleep, right. When you go into this different sleep cycles, right. And how many of them do you get per night and how that repairs your body, how that repairs your mind. And 
getting them buy in on that. You know, and how can we change how we do things? You know, we've been we're we have a formula and a structure that's been very successful, but you know, it it is definitely not with us. It's not if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's when you find something that you think and you believe in, like like again, sleep and rest and recovery. <laughs> it's unbelievable how impactful it is and how much that and a good diet will take care of so many things, including strength building. How can we break what we already have and make it better? Um, and I think so that a lot of the sleep studies and the information and trying to involve more of it in what we do, or at least allowance for our guys to take advantage of it. Um, when we create those, the opportunities in our program structure, you know, like I said, not lifting at 6 a.m. every morning or, or, you know, three days a week. We're giving our guys the chance to take advantage of the information that we're giving them. Now, I can't make them sleep, but if I open up those times for, no, you don't have to be anywhere. Sleep. They will be when they believe us, you know, if they believe us. And um, that's what I'm like the most recent of learning excited uh, of something that's been really new to a lot of people and seeing how we can take advantage of it. Well, that's great. And something that, that I think I, I truly, truly believe in too. Next question is what is a change that you've made lately? This may play right into <laughs> your sleep studies, but what's a change you've made lately that's, that's made a difference. Uh, well, I know that. Yes. Yeah, so I'll go, I'll move on to another one, uh, but our guys love that. You know, we get to the spring and they're like, I'm sorry, we're lifting at noon. Then we practice. We've never done that. And so they, They've loved that. I think it's had a positive, uh, definitely a positive impact. Um, we've instituted a motto and I took it from my hitting coach and, you know, again, it, he said it, and, but I've promoted it more and more of probably gonna have t-shirts made for our hitters, but ground balls suck. We are, I don't want to say we're, you know, launch angle you. Um, I don't want to like try to get on one side of that argument or another, because the fact is that launch angle has always existed. That's where I'm at. We, we don't teach launch angle to our, our hitters. You know, we use the term because it's always been there. Um, you know, when you hit on the field, you don't need to describe launch angle. It's more of a cage thing. Hit on on the field, you know, goes where it goes. But the bottom line is that line drives and fly balls produce runs. And so when we talk to our hitters, one of the, we, we say it a lot, hey, ground balls suck. We'll go through BP. And, you know, if the guy's rolling over, it's not about his swing and rolling over. We don't even go to that. We just say, Hey, ground ball sucks. Stop it. Stop. And, um, I think our hitters respond to that well, because they, they understand the truth behind it. Not everybody needs to hit the ball straight up in the air. Few guys can hit that high angle and, and be successful. But if you hit the ball on the ground, you're not going to be very successful. There are very, there are times where that works and that's good and it's positive for the team. But, um, we just say ground balls suck a lot to our hitters. And I think that's it's the beauty is in its simplicity and the message that it carries. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe we're recruiting all kinds of better players, but you know, our slugging percentage and our run scored are going up and, and you know, that's not because of that, but it certainly matches up and, and it's promoting that idea. And that's exactly what I want, what I want our guys to think. So scramble suck. <laughs> Next question is what is a drill that your players love that we can steal from you? Oh gosh, the best one. And I'm an infielder. And so again, this is the one that's near and dear. There's nothing like competitive ground balls. 
So at the end of infield practice on a given day, not every day, but as often as you want. And I know I can say I did it when I was a player. We're not professionals, but on Friday, individual defense, or maybe it was Thursday during a given week, doesn't matter. Everybody brought their money and they threw it into the pot. And the last guy standing got it all. And we always talk as coaches about bringing the competitive mentality to practice. And some people will tell you it's next to impossible. It's not, not if you're able to create those type of competitions, um, you know, and when 15 infielders put a dollar into the pot and you're in college and you don't have a job, it's amazing how, uh, how much is riding on that ground ball, that three hopper coming your way. Um, so anything that you can, and, it, and money, you know, gosh, sunflower seeds, you name it, anything. Pride is, is a big deal. Um, anything competitive, but specifically competitive ground balls between infielders, it, there's, you see who your gamers are. It, I think it shows true to the guy that you want the ground ball hit to in the ninth when you do competitive ground balls and you can start that as early as you want in the fall you'll start to see the guys that rise to the occasion. And I think that that, so it's, it's fun. Guys love it and you gain knowledge of your team because of it. So it's that coaches love it and players love it for different reasons. No, that's great. And then finally, what is one book or resource that if you had the budget, you did a fundraiser for it and you could buy a book or just anything in general that you know is going to make most of our listeners better. What would that be? Man, there's so many good books out there. Um, sure. So I've got three. One from when I was a player that absolutely just transformed my thinking as a player. Um, and that's uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a short read. You know, what is it? Maybe a couple hundred pages. And it's not super, you know, small type or anything. But understanding, you know, the idea of, and I was just explaining this to our players the other day. We, for a time, Andy McKay, I think there were four or five years running where every player got a copy of that book. That what literally it was fundraised for, handed out, and we went over it. Um, I've read that book five or six times in my life since then, and it has new meaning every time. But it's so impactful for, you know, again, finding your purpose. And it has, it's, you know, it's not just baseball, but it really does apply to, to what we all do. Um, you know, one of the bases basics, um, should be the basis for every coach should have on their freaking wall. You know, the one behind me, I think, I think my copy's here as opposed to at the office right now, but heads up baseball 2.0 by, uh, Raviza and Dorfman. I just don't think that there's a more readable book for players, coaches, beginners, experts. Um, again, I, you talk about the beauties and the simplicity. It's the idea of Steve jobs, you know, in every Apple product, that he was had a hand in creating it. It's, it wasn't just about function. The form had to match. And I think that heads up baseball provides both. It's the meat and potatoes, but it's the freaking Mona Lisa of the mental game. And it's just, it'll never go away. It's always applicable and, and it's so relatable. So as a coach, if you got to start somewhere with a kind of a, a catch all book that that's specific to baseball and not just, you know, a philosophy or, you know, you have to interpret heads up baseball 2.0 and, and even the first one, it was just amazing. So that, and then the one I've read the most recently that I've heard a lot of people, well, there's, I don't want to say there's controversy, but uh, Eugene Bleeker is the old school versus new school in the, in the player development. I mean, he's very new school, but 
what that book I thought did well was provide a meeting point, a middle point of how both are so valuable. And again, I, I referenced Jerry Weinstein as much as anybody, you know, he'll, he'll, you follow his Twitter and, you know, old guys rule, you know, and, you know, Brent Strom and, and those guys that you can't just have data. Wisdom and knowledge is, is the goal. And you have to have delivery methods and you have to be able to create buy-in with those players, but it's both. You can't be afraid of information. It's, oh, it's terrible, but you can't rely solely on data either because there's no always or nevers in this game. And so I like that book and how it, it, it provides some brand new, you know, metrics and data and, and, and I don't know if it's philosophies, but uh, but it merges it with, hey, that old school scout that knows what he sees, there's an incredible amount of value there as well. And so I think it honors both ends of the spectrum without giving you know one side or the other more weight. It's just a fact of life is that when you know more and you know new stuff and new stuff is actually usually old stuff just being recirculated, um, you know, there's less of a fight. You know, we all have seen hitting and pitching and catching Twitter, and I'm sure there's first base and second base and center field Twitter. And, you know, there's value in information. And when you th- take things too personal, that's not good. Don't take it personal. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if there's any, if there's any other Twitters out there like baseball Twitter. You know, I like if there's a, a, a Steph Curry versus James Harden shot Twitter or you know, I just, like, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's a uh, I formation versus spread. Uh, right. Who knows? Who knows? But, uh, Derek, man, I loved getting to know you a little bit better today. I loved getting to interview you and learn so much from you. I'm going to link your Twitter and your email down below, but I do want to give you the opportunity to just speak to our listeners before you go. So is there anything else that you'd like to say before you head out? Well, I, I guess, you know, the one thing that I've, when I've listened to this podcast and then and then a number of others that I, that I hear and I, I trust in the most is that your ability, whoever you are and whether it's a baseball coach or anything, but the ability to look in the mirror and identify things that you can work on. You know, I know that's been a huge turning point in my career and, and we didn't get to it specifically, but, you know, right around the third year, I had mentioned that we had a tough time and we were we weren't really honoring what Sac City was as, as I define it or others. And we basically hit a reset button and said, you know what, we aren't doing this right and we need to change it and we need to get back to whatever our basics are. And we identified basically three key tools. You know, we're going to play best speed, which is your best effort with every single breath you take. We are going to be good people and we are going to strive to play this game in the moment as often as possible. And that's kind of all we coached for one year. And we went from missing the playoffs for the first time in 40 something years to like being the number three seed the following year. And it started with, Hey, we are bad coaches. Again, we are very average. We're holding on to a dying horse. That is this name that Sac city, we need to change it or that we're, we're really going to be obsolete. And it's amazing how fast you can fix something that turns out wasn't as broke as we thought, but just being honest and being willing to change and open to it. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, we, again, we didn't get a chance to, uh, the technology stuff, it can be really difficult. You should have patience with it. If you're a baseball coach and you're afraid of technology, there's a reason for it. But if you're patient 
and do it anyways and learn what you can and, and, and just little bit by little bit, your players will love you for it because you're going to speak their language and, um, and the buy-in, it, it happens faster. The learning curves get shortened when you start to use some of the technology because you have proof for the things that you know. And it's easier to tell someone and teach them and get them on board with it because you, you're not just saying do it as I say. Look at the numbers. It's impartial. Um, and so utilizing all those tools to your advantage. Be honest with yourself. It's okay to be scared of new stuff, but do it anyways try new stuff because at least at the very least you'll you'll figure out something that you don't want to do again and you'll know it's wrong versus you know something in the back of your mind saying well you were always afraid to try it try it and fail you'll be all right and you'll be smarter because of it thank you for listening to ahead of the curve You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which could include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.